in conclusion, you say, okay, you know, those are some of the worst words a speaker can ever say. You go, why is that? Because people tune out. I had a friend of mine that was a preacher that would never say anything that even hinted at the fact that he was near a conclusion because when he knew he said, okay, in closing or in conclusion or that type of thing, you'd hear Bibles start to close up and you'd hear zippers, you know, and people would close notebooks and pens would start clicking as they, they stopped doing that. It's a dangerous thing to, to say that as a speaker because people then begin to think, okay, what's next? Okay, I have to get out the door because there's a roast in the oven or that. That's not usually what guys are thinking, but they're thinking maybe there's a roast I need to eat that's in the oven uh, or whatever the case may be. But uh, we can uh, actually at times miss the most important things. Because in the conclusion, what, what is the speaker normally doing? He's, he's bringing things to a point where, okay, here's the application of this, or here's the thing that you need to understand, or these are the things that you, you need to be doing, and you kind of want people to, well, be checked in during that time, because that's what you want them to walk out with and be doing, and, and remember as far as the last things of a sermon or a speech or whatever it may be. Well, we are at a conclusion here in Romans chapter 15. Now, most of you are looking at your Bible and going, mm, okay, there's still uh, a few more pages. But we are at a conclusion. I was looking back, we have gone through 53 sermons at this point on the book of Romans. You think about that, that's a full year of sermons on a Sunday morning. Now, it's taken us longer than that uh, for different reasons, Christmas season, these type of things, but we've gone through 53 sermons and we've gotten to the point of Paul's conclusion to the book. Though it's not the final conclusion, it is the conclusion of a major section. You go, what section? It's the section that is the doctrinal section. The section where he's been teaching things that are vitally important for salvation, that the gospel, the good news is the power of God into salvation to them that believe, those that understand these things and, and gain the truths that are here and understand these things are people who are quite secure. And so what he's doing is he's coming to the concluding point of what he wanted to say in his teaching section, because after this, what we're going to have is Paul's going to give us what he was planning on doing. He was giving the, the church at Rome an idea of what he was planning on doing next in his own personal life and, and that he was just kind of asking them to pray for him and, and do that. And then you get to Romans chapter 16 and there's a lot of names in that chapter and you say, well, what's he doing? He's greeting certain people and thanking certain people and saying certain people want to say hello. Uh, and so this is part of a letter that goes on there and there's, there's one or two commands that are left. But for the most part, Paul is bringing his book to a conclusion at this point. You know, he's got the introduction that's about seven verses, and then from here on out, it's closing statements in his letter that he wrote. That's what the epistle, word epistle means, his letter that he wrote to the church at Rome. And so as we go through this, this is not just merely a minor section. This is actually a section where Paul is hoping that you kind of remember some of the things that he's already said. And he's going to, in this very short section of Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13, he's going to go through uh, and mention or hint at some of the things that you go, oh, I remember that uh, from this letter earlier on. Uh, and uh, that was what his hope was. I mean, there are repeated themes that you're going to find in these just few verses that Paul spent whole chapters on. That God was faithful to his promises to Israel, that he was faithful in including Gentiles, which that word Gentiles, you're going to see a lot of in this passage. Just remember that that word Gentiles is not like, you know, saying pagans or somebody like that. No, it's just simply saying this, the nations, everybody else that's not Jewish. Okay, that, that's what that means. But that God, as you see in the section, and has been hinted at throughout the book, that the nations can be included in the people of God, not just the Jews. And that there are broader themes in this, this book of hope and joy and peace and faith and the working of the Holy Spirit. These are all things that he's already mentioned in hopes that you remember some of these things as he comes and brings this book to a conclusion, his concluding statements. But you say, what's the thing that he emphasizes right in this passage and would be a theme for us this morning, just to kind of work off of this morning? And it's just simply this. Christians imitate Christ's ministry to all people 
for the glory of God. So Christians imitate Christ's ministry to all people for the glory of God. See, what you see in verse number 7, you have this statement. It says, wherefore receive ye one another. There was this broad welcome that the church was supposed to have. Now, back in verse uh, number 1 that we looked at last week, or excuse me, not chapter 15, chapter 14 that we looked at a couple weeks ago, verse 1, that there is this understanding in the church that him that is weak in the faith, receive ye him. Now, there are people that are weak in the faith, and you go, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that they uh, are weak people in the physical sense. It just simply means this, that they're people that have stronger consciences. Okay, it's kind of an ironic way to use the term, these people are weak. No, they have a more sensitive conscience about certain issues. There were people who were defined as strong that were ones who had, what do I say, a non less sensitive conscience. It wasn't that they didn't care about what God said and that they didn't have any morality or any commands that they were following. It's just their, their conscience wasn't as sensitive to certain issues, uh, disputed things, things that don't have a clear statement in the scripture on how we ought to live and how we ought to act. But what the, the statement was there is that those that are strong are supposed to welcome those and accept those. Okay, it's not just merely go, okay, we put up with them. No, you welcome them into the body as part of the body of Christ, as part of the church, uh, that you welcome them and make them feel at home that you're there to give them help, you're there to comfort them, you're there to fellowship with them, that you're not to uh, ignore them, as was the problem with some of those that had a strong uh, side to them. They would sometimes just not pay attention to them. But in this passage, Paul goes a step further and he just says, listen, I'm not making a statement to those that are strong in the church to, those, uh, to accept those that are weak. Look at verse number seven. It says this, wherefore, receive ye one another. It doesn't matter, and we're talking about here in a church where you have people that know Christ as Savior, that they've accepted Him, that it doesn't matter who they are, that you accept them, and that's not just merely going, I put up with them. No, you welcome them. You're excited that they are a part of the life that you have. They're part of the church that you're a part of. And you welcome them. You accept them. You enjoy their company. And for believers, this is really what we've worked through the last couple of weeks is that we ought to reflect the unity that is found in the Godhead between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's a unity there. It ought to be seen as people who are saying, we're ones who follow God and believe in His Son. It ought to be reflected in a unity that goes on here. And so you have this very broad statement about what we're supposed to do as far as accepting people. And you go, well, why should I do that? Because you don't really, you know, you're thinking about this, uh, that Paul didn't really understand what our congregation is like. You know, there are certain people that are hard to love. There are certain people that aren't exactly like me. Well, thankfully they aren't uh, in some ways. But the fact is, is uh, you say, well, why should I be ones who are so willing to accept and encourage and help others that are in the body of Christ here as the church. And the reason is given in verses 7 through 9, and it's because of Christ. And you look at verse 7, it says, wherefore receive one another, and the word there is as, but in the Greek it's really translated this was just as. Okay, no different than what Christ did when he received us to the glory of God. Uh, we find this, that Christ was willing to accept us even when we were unlovely. See, what Paul hints at is one of the themes that was so vitally important for us to understand in the book of Romans. And, and what I'm going to want you to do today is probably have a bookmark because we're going to be looking at some different passages in Romans and in other portions of Scripture. But here in Romans chapter 15, put a marker and go back to Romans chapter 5. Because I, I want you to remember how unlovely and unlikable you were in the sight of God. In Romans chapter 5, uh, this section where uh, Paul is just trying to remind people that, listen, you were accepted by Christ even in the worst uh, state that you were in. But in Romans chapter 5, and starting in verse number 6, 
It says this, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. You say, without strength, what does that mean? We were weak. We were without hope. Now, it's, it's really in the context that we were weak and that we couldn't save ourselves. All our righteousness was as filthy rags. And nothing that you do is going to impress God. God's not going to go, oh, wow, that was fantastic. That was really great. I think I'll accept you into heaven. No, because our whole life is tainted by sin. Every aspect of it, our mind, our heart, our will, our emotions, our actions, all of it is stained by sin. It's just the way we are. And so when you have the statement, for you are yet without strength, you didn't have any ability to gain salvation. Christ was willing to die for you. You're kind of going, well, I didn't do anything to deserve it. And the answer is, no, you didn't do anything to deserve your salvation. Well, how about this? Verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. You do have stories in human, in culture and in, in, in uh, human interest stories where you have individuals that are willing to put their life uh, in front of somebody else to protect their life. I was reading a story this last week of a Ukrainian mother who was willing to cover her child during a shelling and was killed. You say, what, what was that? Well, a mother was protecting the child, was willing to give her own life for the protecting of her own child. You know, that happens in human life uh, on a regular basis where people are willing for good people or for someone that they, they like a lot, they're willing to risk their own life and perhaps die. But look at verse number 8. But God demonstrated or commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You go, well, what's the important thing about that? Well, being a sinner just simply means this. We've shaked our fist in the face of God and said, I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to do my own thing and I want to do what I want to do and you can't tell me what to do. I mean, there are passages that talk about that we're at enmity of God. We hate God. We don't like him. We do our own thing. And think about in real life. Would you be willing to give up your life for someone that hates you and despises you and spits on you and kicks you and does that type of thing in a, in a desperate situation? Would you put your life on the line to protect them? The answer is absolutely not. In fact, you might go, well, they, they, they're getting their just desserts. But think about this. We were like that with God. We said, we're going to go our own way. The scripture says we are like sheep. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We wander off from God. But even despite all of that, even though as you think about what happened to Christ on the cross, he had his beard pulled. He had people spit on him, beat him. They walked by on the cross uh, when he was on the cross and made a joke of him. Even in all of that, Christ died for everyone. Every one of us, no matter how despicable we were, how we acted towards God, what our actions and activities were towards God, Christ was willing to die for us. And you find there in verse 9, then much more, much more then, now being justified by his blood, we're saved from wrath through him. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, and those are strong terms, we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were enemies of God and he died in our place and he rose from the dead. And you say, well, do I have the possibility of having life eternal? Well, if he was willing to die in your place, he's willing to give you life. And so when you go and think about that type of theme going on and the Apostle Paul here concluding his book and trying to remind people of certain things, you come back to this point in Romans chapter 15 where he says, you need to receive and welcome everyone in the body of Christ as they are a part of that and welcome them just as, as it says there, just as Christ received us. We weren't at our best. In fact, we were at our worst, and God welcomed us, accepted us, saved us. 
He could have left us to ourselves and our own destruction in our time of need. But no, He came and He was one that was there. And so we are to receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. I mean, why did Christ save us? Well, it was because we needed saving, but it was also to bring glory to God for people to see God. That God is able to save really bad people and change them for eternity brings glory to God. That God can take a man who murdered other people because of what they thought and what they believed and that God could take and save a person like that. Say, who is that? The man writing, penning the page that's here. He murdered Christians because he thought that they were in the wrong until he one day on the Damascus Road met Christ and was transformed and changed. But he wasn't a good man. And people were, in, were amazed at this and they praised God that God could save a man like Saul, who eventually we know as Paul. A man like that. I mean, it's the same idea of a man that we've talked about quite often. We sing his songs, uh, the one most famous is Amazing Grace, but here's a man who lived his life running from God. He was the worst of worst individuals. He ran a slave ship. At times he was enslaved by different individuals because he was such a rotten individual. It is described at certain times that he would create curse words as if sailors need to create any more curse words. He would create those and he was that type of an individual, but yet he found grace. And when you look at an individual like that, that God can take one who worked on a slave ship and was okay with people dying in the hull of his ship uh, and take a man who curses God and curses everyone else and does this and God changes him. What do you go? You go this, that's amazing grace. That's incredible. God would be willing to do that, to save a soul like that. See, Christ accepted and welcomed us when we were yet sinners we were yet enemies so why is uh, believers at times we can't accept and welcome others is beyond really the scope of understanding because we're followers of christ christ accepted us could we not be ones who welcome others even though they may not be perfect great fantastic I mean, Jesus did it for the glory of God so that God would be seen, his amazing power and his ability. And just think about this as you go through that Jesus was a minister. Jesus was willing to serve. It wasn't that he just merely came uh, to be lifted up. He came to serve because you look at verse number eight, it says this, now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister. Sometimes we look at that term and go, minister, you know, they, sometimes people call me as a pastor a minister, you know, whatever. Don't call me reverend, please. Uh, but uh, I'm not reverend. Uh, but uh, they call you ministers and other things like that. You know what that term it really is, should be understood as? It should be understood. It's the term used to describe, it is the term that we oftentimes call deacon, but it's the word servant. Jesus came into this world not to be served by others, but to serve. You find in Mark chapter 10, where his disciples are arguing about who's going to be the most important person when the kingdom's set up. I'm the most important person. No, I'm going to sit at the right hand. No, I'm going to sit at the right hand when he sets up his kingdom. Well, Jesus knows all that's going on, and he pulls his disciples aside, and he has this conversation to them, and he says this, Jesus called his disciples unto him and he said this, Ye know they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship, dominion over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so it shall not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, which is the word deacon. And whosoever will be the chiefest among you shall be, and that word servant is the word slave. I mean, that's even a more harsh term in our uh, culture, in our mindset. Let them be slave of all, for even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, came not to be ministered unto, to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus came into this world not to lord his position over others or to have power over them. No, he came to serve. And here you have Jesus Christ who came into this world and he, well, was willing to accept us when we weren't at our best and he came into this world to serve. Why can't we do the same thing? Reflecting a Savior, reflecting the Christ who has saved us. You say, well, who did Jesus minister to? Who did he serve? Well, Paul gives this in this passage, and he spent much time in dealing with this in the book of Romans. Verse 8, he says this, that Jesus was a minister of the circumcision. You go, what's that? That's just another name for the Jews. Okay, He was a servant of the Jews for the truth of God to confirm promises made unto the Father. See, Jesus came into this world, Galatians chapter 4 tells us that he came into the world in the fullness of time and God sent forth Jesus, or his son, to be made of the woman, made under the law. That statement, made under the law, is just not a side note. He was one who lived amongst Jews, lived according to their law, and lived by their rules, and lived a righteous life. He kept all the rules that all of them tried to try and keep and they couldn't. He lived all of these things out, uh, and he did this. He did this so that he could minister to the Jews, to be a servant to them, to be able to, well, as it says here, to be able to confirm the promises made unto the Father. See, there were things and promises made uh, to different individuals in the history of the nation of Israel where God promised that he would send a son and he would send a savior, that he would send a Messiah. He would send one who would have the ability to save. And he said this over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. You say, well, why did he come into the world to serve Jews that hated him and yelled crucify him? It's because there were promises that God had made that he would save Jews. That he would save the Jewish nation eventually. That he would do these things. See, Jesus came in the world to accomplish, and as we read through Romans chapter 9 to 11, I mean, this lengthy passage that we dealt with, and we said this is one of the harder passages that you're going to deal with, where it just goes through and lays out that, yes, God keeps his promises. You go, why is it so important that God keeps his promises? Because if he promised to save you and backs out on that, you're without hope. And if he made promises to the Jews and he backed out on those promises, there's no guarantee that you're going to be saved. But what Romans 9, 10, and 11 goes through, and Paul spent much time and we spent much time, where we go through, and yes, some of the Jews rejected Christ, but what Christ was going to do was to be able to save them as a nation eventually, that he was going to keep his promises that he made in the Old Testament, that God was not going to fail on his promises. And it's because he came into the world and died in the place of sinners. He did the fulfilling of all the things that were needed And for the Jews, he came into this world to serve and to die at their own hands in order to save them. But the problem is, is that as you look at a room like this and you look at the culture at large, most people aren't Jews. You're Gentiles. You're all the other nations. And you'd say, well, that was nice. He came in to minister to the people that he'd always been nice to, the ones that he gave a temple to and that he gave the word to, and he gave them all these things, and he was nice to them. Would he possibly be nice to everyone else? The answer is, well, you look in verse number 9. He came into this world and was a minister that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Think of the term, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, that, that's what we're thankful for because the Gentiles kind of realized they were outside of all the privileges and the promises and all these things that were made to the Jews. And they're kind of wondering, do we get any sort of hope? Do we have the hope of eternal life? And what you find is that Christ came into the world to be a blessing to the nations. And you go, well, how do we know that? Well, way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God made a promise to, or made a covenant with Abraham, 
He promised that Abraham would have a great nation, that he would have many children that would number as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. He promised that, but he promised someone that would come out of his line that would be a blessing to all nations. Genesis chapter 12, where this promise was made, reads this way, the Lord said unto Abraham, get thee out of thy country from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I'll show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. (coughs) Excuse me. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth, we might put in there the Gentiles, the nations, shall be blessed. He promised Abraham that someone in his line would be a blessing to all the nations, that they would have hope, that they would have joy, that they would understand what God's mercy was like. And when Jesus came into this world, he served people that at times did not know who he was. In fact, they had ignored him. Gentiles didn't have a written word of God. They didn't have what we would call special or specific revelation like the Jews did, where they could sit down and read the word of God in the Old Testament. The nations didn't have that given to them, but they did have what we call general revelation. They could at least look at the world around them and come to the conclusion that there was a God. The problem was that that revelation that they understood was that there was a God, they didn't glorify God. I want you to turn back, once again, put here Romans chapter 15, because this is something that Paul dealt with. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul deals with people who are just like, well, people who don't have the Word of God. They don't have that privilege, but they can look at creation. You have this statement in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Our sins against God and our sins against men, God is going to judge that. And you say, well, why is God going to judge people? Well, because of this reason. Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. It's, it's, it's displayed in them. For God hath showed it unto them. Verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. You can look at the smallest of cells and the largest of the galaxies in the universe, and you've got to be impressed that there is a God there. The structure that could not have evolved, have gotten there, you look at it and you go, this is impossible. There has to be a creator. There has to be a God. I mean, they can understand that there's a power out there, that there is one who is in charge. And in Romans 1.20, it ends it this way, so that they're without excuse. They at least can go, there's a God. Well, what's the problem? Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful but became vain or empty in their imaginations and their foolish hearts were darkened professing themselves to be wise they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible god into images made like unto corruptible man to birds to four-footed beasts and to creeping things say what happened when they knew what god was like they didn't like it they didn't want it they didn't glorify him they didn't thank him no they came up with what they thought was god they created their own idols they crafted their own designs they came up with their own things that they thought were the answer to their life the problem for gentiles was that they did not glorify god they weren't thankful for him so you say well why did jesus come into the world well we go back to romans chapter 15 and verse number 9 that the gentiles might glorify there it is god for his mercy See, Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sins for, well, Gentiles, people who initially said, well, we don't like God, we don't care, we've seen what he's done in the universe, we're going to go our own way. No, Jesus Christ came into the world and he came to die for the whole world, for God so loved the world, everyone, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ came into the world to save everyone, not just Jews, 
And Christ came in to serve so that those Gentiles who at one time in their life were going, we hate God, we don't like what he's like, we don't know him uh, as much as we want to, but we really don't care, we're not thankful for him, we're going to go our own way, that eventually those individuals would be ones who are going, here is this God, and here's how incredible he is. He sent his own son to die for us, to give us life eternal. What a great God this is. He gave us mercy when we didn't deserve it. We went our own way. We did our own thing. In fact, we made all sorts of images like of him that were wrong, that gave bad impressions of him, that were ugly and twisted. And yet he was willing to extend mercy to us through his son. What a great God. Jesus Christ came in to accept individuals like that, to save individuals like that. Now, then what you have in the rest of this section is just simply this, that this wasn't accidental. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save Jews and to save Gentiles. To accept Jews and to accept Gentiles, everybody from all nations, that he did this. This wasn't accidental. This was prophesied. You know what I mean is prophesied? It was told beforehand this was going to happen. See, if you read through in the, the reading this morning, you recognize all of a sudden that in, or in verse 9, all of a sudden we have statements like, as it is written, and then verse 10, and again he saith, and then verse 11, and again, and then verse 12, and again Isaiah saith. That's Isaiah uh, saith. All of a sudden what Paul does is he just starts quoting passages of Scripture where he points to the fact that both Jews and Gentiles were in the plan of God that they would eventually praise him and glorify him for what he's done. In the passage of the scripture that you have there, uh, in verse number 9, you have a quote of 2 Samuel 22.50, or it depends on whether you want to use the passage in Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel 22. They're the same for the most part. But at the end of that, you find that the Jews will glorify God amongst the Gentiles, that the Jews would magnify God amongst the nations. And the passage there is this, Psalm 18, verses 49 to 50, says this, Therefore I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the heathen, among the nations, and sing praises to thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and showeth mercy to his anointed. We would say the word Messiah, or New Testament Christ, to his Christ to David and to his seed forevermore. See, what was happening there is David was writing in that psalm and it was after he had, well, had victory over Saul. Not that he really had victory over Saul, but that he had gotten escaped from Saul and he escaped from all of his enemies and it's laying out what his life was like and everything the Lord had done for him as king and that he had had victory over the nations and that he was able to go to these other nations and just magnify and lift up the name of God amongst those nations that he conquered. And it was pointing to the fact that one day there would be one who could go amongst the nations and be proclaimed the son of David or his anointed one that would be able to go and proclaim great things amongst the nations. That the nations, the Gentiles, would hear of the glory of God and would hear his praises and what great things he had done, that this would happen. I mean, that's what that psalm is talking about there in verse number 9, Psalm uh, 18, verses 49 to 50. But you get to verse 10, here you got this another quote. It says, and again he saith, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 43. Deuteronomy 32 is the last statements of Moses to the nation of Israel before he dies. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And at the end of Deuteronomy, he sang a song. And it was known as the Song of Moses. And he has this song that goes through and recounts all the great things that God has done uh, for the nation of Israel. But he reminds them that you're sinful people and that you're probably going to wander off from God. But eventually God's going to be gracious to you. And here's what's going to happen. He's going to restore you and bring you salvation, even though you wandered from him. And that it's not only going to be you that sings praise to God, it's going to be the nations that are going to sing along with you. This is what Deuteronomy 32 says. It says this, rejoice, O nations, with his people. His people, who are his people? The Jews. For he will avenge the blood of his servants, render vengeance against his adversaries. He will be merciful unto his land and to his people. What you find there is it was prophesied that eventually what's going to happen is that you're going to have Jews and Gentiles praising God together. 
It's going to happen. The nations are going to do it along with the Jews. Then you have in verse number 10, or excuse me, verse 11, you have another passage of Scripture, and this one comes from Psalm 117. Say, what's significant about Psalm 117? It's the psalm that everyone wants to memorize. Why? It's only two verses. Yeah, it's the short one. You can say, I memorized the psalm. It's a short one. But it's a psalm that's written to not the Jews, it's written to the Gentiles, to the nations. I mean, Paul quotes that here, and he says this, uh, the, the, the full psalm, and I, I can't quote it to you because I don't have this one memorized. Um, <clears throat> oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. End of the psalm. But it starts off with, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Here's a command where the nations are to praise God. It doesn't matter what the Jews are doing. You need to praise God. You're going to do it. It's going to happen because God's going to show mercy to you, regardless of what he does to the Jews. So praise the Lord. And then he quotes this passage in in chapter 12. Now, if you've noticed this, he's gone across the whole of the Old Testament. The law, the Psalms, and now he's at the prophets. Paul is using passages of Scripture from every portion of the Old Testament, not just the prophets, which you would expect. No, he's going, look at the law, first five books, look at the books of history, look at the Psalms, and now look at the prophets. All the sections of the Old Testament, I'm just showing you that God expected Gentiles to be saved. Here the passage he quotes is in Isaiah chapter 11, which is a passage that is oftentimes used to remind us of what the Lord was going to do by sending his son into the world. What he quotes is Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. When you read there in verse 12, it says this, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall trust. But you start off that passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, There shall be a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch that shall grow out of his roots. And then this statement that Jesus said about himself, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I mean, this passage that is stated about that, and then what God says is what he's going to do is he's going to change the way the world lives one day. It's going to happen, yet future to us. Uh, He was going to rule, verse 4, with righteousness. He shall judge the poor, reprove with equity the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. The righteousness, or excuse me, righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness the girdle of his girdle of his reins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and fatling together, and the little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the sucking child shall play in the hole of an asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on a cockatrice's den. You go, what's that? Putting their hands in a den of snakes that are poisonous and not be bitten. See, Jesus is going to come one day to rule on this earth, and you're going to find that the nations are going to obey him, and the whole world is going to be in balance. But then what the Apostle Paul quotes here, verse 10, he says, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand up for an ensign, or a flag, on a flagpole. Shall be an ensign, a banner to call people together. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. They're going to come and seek and put their trust in him. It was prophesied that this is going to happen yet future. Now, that event has not happened yet. Where all the nations are going to see Christ when he comes and returns to rule and reign. That hasn't happened yet. But it does prophesy the nations are going to put their trust in him. The Gentiles. And so you go through all of this, and what you simply say is this, is that Jesus Christ came into this world, and he accepted both Jews and Gentiles. It was not something that was accidental. He was intentionally a servant. It was prophesied that he would save Jews, he would save Gentiles, that there's hope for you because he was willing to serve and minister to others. And you go, so what should I be willing to do? Well, it's the side note. It's not how he's going to end or conclude his passage with, but he's just simply saying this. If Christ was willing to do this to save both Jews and Gentiles, it was something that he did and served. It was prophesied that he would do. Why aren't you willing to accept others and welcome others? 
And so he kind of puts together all sorts of themes that he has from the book of Romans to this point. But then he gets to his concluding prayer. And I just simply want you to look at this concluding prayer. This is the prayer that kind of would close off the book and you would have a, almost a stopping point at this point before you would read the concluding statement if you were reading this in, back in New Testament times. But the Apostle Paul just simply closes with this. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Now think about this. What has this whole book been about to this point? I mean, we said it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And what have we to do? We have to believe what Jesus Christ did for us. That's what the whole book pivots on. You start off in Romans 1, 2, and 3. And if you ever read through Romans 1, 2, and 3, I hope that you are hopeless that you're frustrated because that's what the intent was because what Paul does is he lays out that all are sinners. Gentiles, yeah, okay, well, they didn't glorify God. They knew him from the universe, but they ignored him. They went their own way. And you read at the end of Romans chapter one, it's just that they're doing whatever they want. It's really disgusting. And you're just going, this is, these are people without hope. You know what? They've got all kinds of sins in their life. They can't possibly please God. They've gone their own way. They're without hope. They're under the judgment of God. You get to Romans chapter 2, and you've got religious people. It's the Jews, but these are people who had the Word of God. And what Paul lays out is that it doesn't matter. They had the written Word of God, and they go off and do their own things. They steal. They lie. They commit adultery. They do all the things that everybody else does in the world even though they have the written word of God. And so then you get to Romans chapter 3, and it says this, that all are sinners. There is none righteous. No, not one. There's not a single person that's pleasing to God. They're not going to get into heaven because they've got sin. They're not going to make it by their works. And so you get to Romans 3 and verse 19, and you're just kind of going, I'm without hope. I'm going to die and suffer judgment forever because I'm not pleasing to God. I don't do anything that is good in his sight. And I just do my own things. I go my own way. Is there any kind of hope? And it's in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 where everything pivots. And you find the statement there as you get to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. It makes this statement. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by the works of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, now the righteousness of God without the law, how can I get righteousness without trying to do right, is manifested, being witnessed to by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All of a sudden, you go, I have no hope. I'm going to stand judged before God uh, in that last day. There's no hope for me. But there is, because Jesus Christ has come into this world. And by faith, by believing. That's what the Apostle Paul prays there in Romans chapter 15. He says that by believing, that you have joy and peace. So you go through the rest of this book as you go through it, and the Apostle Paul's just going, you're okay. Because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you go, well, are there any other works that I have to do? Romans chapter 4, you read through it, and it's like, no, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to go through certain ceremonies. You don't have to do certain things. Those don't save. Just believing in Jesus Christ. And you get to Romans chapter 5, and you have this statement in verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have access into this faith and the grace wherein we stand. And we rejoice. There's that word joy. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations work patience, patience experience, experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. A person who has faith in God is confident. They're not going to be ashamed in the last day. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And you just go through the rest of the book, and it's just simply this. What if I sin? You know, I'm saved, but I still sin. Is, 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 am I without hope? And the answer is no, you're still saved. 
But what Paul goes through and says this is you've been freed from the dominion of sin. You don't have to sin anymore. And there is the possibility of having victory over sin, even though you get to Romans chapter 7 and Paul just simply says this, oh, wretched man that I am. The apostle Paul's admitting that he has struggled with sin. But you get to Romans chapter 8 and you find out, but thanks be to God who give us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ, and you find all the blessings that an individual has in Jesus Christ, that there is the hope of salvation, that you're an heir of God, you're joint heirs with Christ, you're brothers and sisters with Christ, that you've got the security. And it doesn't matter if you go through bad things, uh, and he lists all the things in Romans chapter 8 that you could go through. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize there's all sorts of things in this life that you're just suddenly going, could this possibly take away my salvation in Jesus Christ? And the answer is no. You kind of go, well, what does that give me? It gives me peace. It gives me joy. It gives me hope confidence to, to read things like this and you go well why do we have romans 9 10 11 well that's that section where it says did god back out on his promises of the nation of israel so he may possibly back out in his promises to save me and you have that lengthy section that goes no god's keeping his promises to the nation of israel he's going to keep his promises to you and that brings us to romans chapter 12 13 14 and 15 as we live out our life as we live our life in this world and we're here, can we have hope and joy amongst people at times who aren't very hopeful and they're really mean and they're cruel and they're bad sometimes? You have governments that don't do what they're supposed to do and these type of things. Can I still have joy and peace and can I have hope? The answer is you have read time and time again to this point. The Apostle Paul goes, you have reason to have joy. You have peace. And you can have confidence because of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul prays this, now the God of hope, the one who gives confidence. Now understand that word hope is not, you know, I'm hoping like a kid at Christmas, okay? That word hope is a sealed settledness. I'm settled, this is going to happen. The God of hope fill you with all uh, that, that excuse me the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the holy ghost you say how do i do all these things i'm supposed to be doing it's because the holy spirit helps you it's not because you're anything special and god through the times that you now live right until the day you die will be doing things through your life and that spirit that's in you realize this the, the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace i mean those are the two things he just said the holy spirit can give you peace and joy you've read stuff that can give you peace and joy and you can have hope and so for paul what he's just simply praying is this that everything that you've read to this point that God will take and use that and just make your joy increase, your peace increase, and as you read it, it just makes your confidence all the more solid that you are one who is secure in what God has done. So my question for you is, is do you have that joy, peace, and do you have that confidence? And you say, no, I don't think so. Well, I'll tell you this. Go through and read Romans chapter 1 and read to the point that we got to today and take what it says and put your faith in it. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners just like you and that by you putting your faith in him, you'll have a right standing before God and what he will then do is make you righteous like the Son of God. You'll be conformed to the image of the Son. That's what Romans 8 says. You'll start looking like Christ. You'll start acting like him. That's part of the process uh, that will happen. 
And if you don't know Christ as Savior, none of these things will change. You won't understand any of this. But if you do accept Christ as your Savior, it's the power of God. You know this if you've been saved and you've come to the fact of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. You know the transforming power. What it did to change you. And so for the Apostle Paul, he just says, listen, you can have all of those things, but you've got to understand this Jesus Christ who came into the world to save both Jews and Gentiles, came into the world to save you. You can have joy and peace and hope in this one who came into the world, Jesus the Christ. You need to put your faith in him. He'll change your life just like he did for this one who wrote this book. And he's done it for people like this that are in this room where Jesus Christ changed and transformed sinners, undeserving sinners, but it's given them great grace and great hope. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for a salvation that's undeserved. When mankind sinned, you could have just left us to our own destruction, to go our own way, to be separated from you forever. But no, you sent your son. You sent Jesus Christ to save us. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that uh, we would be individuals that then would reflect what Christ has done for us. That we'd bring glory to him, that we would magnify him, that he's the one who can save. That he can change individuals. Your son is capable of doing that. And so, Lord, we pray that as we live our life in this week ahead, that we would glorify the son and show forth a joy and a peace in the midst of circumstances in the world that are collapsing. That we're people who are confident of what our future holds because we know Jesus Christ. We put our faith in him. He's our only hope. Lord, we pray for those that here today may not know Jesus as their Savior. They've not put their faith and trust in Him alone. Their works aren't going to save them. Their religion will not save them. Uh, none of them will say, none of those things will save only Jesus Christ, faith in Him. May they come to know Christ and find hope and joy and peace for eternity, forever and ever. And we'll rejoice in Your presence, magnifying You for the mercy You've given. Love You, Lord. Thank You for Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen.